0: We're in the first chapter of the Gospel of John. We'd like to review just for a second, catch up where we are. Remembering these first 18 verses are kind of an introduction, a prologue of the Gospel. And in verse 19, we start getting into the narrative, the story of uh, the life of this man, Jesus. So the introduction, John starting with in the beginning, we're introduced to the Word of God. This Word of God was in the beginning at the creation, so He's eternal. He was with God. He was in the bosom of the Father, as it's Jesus would say later on. So He was with God. They were together in unison before the creation and at the creation. And He was God. He was an equal part of the Godhead. All things that were created were made by Him. And we know we read in other places, it's by Him that all things consist. And not just, not just natural things on the earth, but everything that was made, was made by Him. And in saying that, remembering this, that there is the Trinity, the Father was not created, the Holy Spirit was not created, and the Word was not created. But they created, and through through the Word, all things were produced, and he was the source of life. so outside of outside of the Trinity, there was nothing at all. there was no world, there was no sun, there was nothing, and there was no life. So in creating, you know we can create uh, artwork, we can create man can create furniture, man can create. Uh, vehicles we can make buildings all manner of things but you know we don't have life in ourselves to give life to that that we create so all that we can make is it doesn't have life as we do but this this holy god and this divine logos he's got work, he's got life in him so that he can create out of the dust to the ground And He can make that alive through His power. So this life, everything that lives, lives by Him. Not just starting the motor, the starter of your vehicle. You turn it and it starts the engine and then the starter cuts off. And the engine runs on its own. The Lord's not like that. God started it in creation and He continues it. So it's by Him that all things consist. And then we're introduced to John. John the Baptist. He's come to bear witness of this Word of God, this light of God, this life of God. And then we read about the great rejection. He was in the world. The world knew Him not. He came to His own and His own received Him not. And so we're still speaking about the the Word, the life, the light. We've not been introduced to Jesus. We've not been told about His incarnation to this point in the Gospel. So I I believe that what He's referencing here was pre-incarnation. The Word was in the world. I mean, it was by Him that the world continued. And so He was in the world and he was the revelation of God. As the Word was revealed to the prophets, as God spoke to Moses, as God spoke to Noah, as God spoke to Abraham, there's the divine Word of God, the the revelation of God to man. And you know, all through the Old Testament, and it's, it's really, it's shockingly just... What a vast majority of folks never received the Old Testament Word of God. What percentage of the world through the Old Testament believed the Word of God? The Gentile world certainly as a whole rejected it other than just a small handful. And the majority of the Jews, His own people, rejected it as well. So, it was in such a place in Elijah's day that Elijah said I'm the only one in Israel that's left that's still serving you. God said I've reserved 7,000. I've kept 7,000. And so the majority have rejected the Word of God. And it's the same today. We're going to see it in Jesus' incarnation and His time on the earth. And it's no different today. The majority reject." But you know what there always is? All through history. You start with uh, Cain and Abel and Seth, the children of Adam and Eve. You go all through the world and everywhere you look, there's a little remnant that believes. John doesn't say everybody rejected, but there are a few that receive Him. There's a few that receive the Word of God and those that receive Him, to them He gives power, privilege. The words exousia, and it it's not that he's giving me ability or strength to do something but he's given me the privilege or the delegated influence to do that so he's given them the privilege or the right to become sons of god which were born now we're in 13 this is where we left off last time so these folks that are made children of god they were not children of God before. The thought, now remember this, you'll you'll hear it, the thought that everybody is God's child because God created Adam, that is not true. Man (coughs) fell in the garden. The Lord Jesus Himself told the Pharisees, you're of your father the devil. You know what they needed? A new birth. They were not children of God until or unless they were born again, to be born from above. So these children that received the, the right or the privilege to become sons of God, now the Jews going to say, well, it's because I'm a son of Abraham that I got the privilege to be saved. The religious is going to say, it's because I wanted and chose and determined to do the right thing. And that's why I got saved. And the church crowd's going to say, well, you got saved because we determined that you were going to be saved. In all three scenarios, the credit and the glory is not to God, in one, it's to who I am in my family. In the other, it's to my determination or choice. And in the third, it's to other people's determination or choice. (coughs) So John says in 13, they were not born of the blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, (coughs) but of God. So the word of there, and every time you see it, it's to originate. So this birth did not originate in my blood and who I was and who my family was. So that whether or not, really, I believe in this text, we can can get her down to this, whether or not I'm a Jew had nothing to do with whether I'm born again or not. No credit can go to me being a Jew. That's Old Testament also. How many Jews died in unbelief in the wilderness? 599,998 fighting men, men between the ages of 20 and 50, died in the wilderness in unbelief. And Ruth, a Moabitess, she entered into the lineage of the Lord Jesus Christ. Rahab, a harlot of Jericho, entered into the lineage of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not of blood. It's never been of blood. This also didn't originate in the will, the determination, the choice, or the preference of the flesh. So it's not the reason I'm saved did not originate, and it's something that I wanted to do. Now I realize uh, you, you could get technical and you could argue right there and say, well, I wanted to be saved, and that's why I came to the altar. But if there was a genuine desire for salvation and coming to God, that didn't originate in you. That came from... It came from God. That originated in God and it was that grace of God that Kevin talked about today. He influenced us and He changed our nature and desire and brought us to the place we wanted to come to God. So that it didn't originate in me In this way that I can say I did it and I am the reason that I am a child of God. Nor the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. So not of the determination or choice or preference of mankind. It didn't originate that the high priest chose to save me. It didn't originate that the Sanhedrin chose to save me. It didn't originate that the twelve apostles chose to save me. It didn't originate that the church or the deacons or uh, the French Broad Association or the Southern Baptist Convention. I mean, where do you want to give the glory to? It didn't originate in man. And we looked at Abraham Abraham said, I would to God that Ishmael could walk before you. Isaac said, Go and make me venison, Esau. Bring it to me and I'll bless you because I'm about to die. Joseph told Jacob, Your your hands are wrong. Jacob crossed his hands, put his right hand on the younger son. Joseph said, You're messing up, pops. You're blind, you can't see. You've put your hand in the wrong place. Jacob said, what I've done, I've done. And in Hebrews 11, by faith, Jacob blessed the sons of Joseph. So it's not by the determination or the choice of man, but it is of the determination and choice of God. That's where the birth originates. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 according as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. Who chose before the foundation of the world? The Lord determined before the foundation of the world, and He chose us in Christ, having predestinated us under the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself. Those are nasty words, ain't they? To man, those are nasty words, because man wants to do it himself. But in Ephesians chapter 1, it's telling me that God chose it before the world was ever created, before there was ever an Adam and an Eve. And not only did He choose it, but he predestinated. <coughs> I'm sorry. He determined beforehand that it was going to be brought to pass that I'd be brought into the family of God. James 1.18. James is uh, uh, one of the letters. Because of chapter 2 and the works and faith, man twists that up and says, well, it is what you do that determines whether you're saved. But in James chapter 1 verse 18, of his own will begat he us with the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. Not my will, not my choice, not my determination, but it was God's will that begat. So that word there, that's the same word as born when you hear born again. And when you think about begatting, and the way the word's used in the Bible to procreate of the father, Jacob begat Judah. David begat Solomon. Judah had nothing to do with Jacob begetting him, nor did Solomon. But it's God that's doing the the birthing. So now verse 14. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So our first first revelation that this Word that He's been talking about is going to become man and not just become man, but dwell among us that word dwell, it's, it's to tabernacle. It really means to pitch a tent. And I realize the flesh uh, in Corinthians, the flesh is called a tent. It's a temporary dwelling place. I realize that that's the case. But I believe here we've got uh, looking back towards the Old Testament. And we'll see that as we go. In Galatians chapter 4. When the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law. So the Word, the divine Word of God, the Creator of all things, the the power and means that everything consists, He's going to be made under a woman, and He's going to be birthed under the law. Think Think about all that that says right there. It tends to when we come to Jesus, we we cut the man Jesus off from the Word that's eternal. John's trying to tie us all together, get us to see that the man Jesus was the divine Word of God. He was a member of the Trinity and a part of the Godhead. He was the determined means that God was going to accomplish this redemption and it was planned before the foundation of the world. So the fullness of time come, God sent forth His Son. So the fullness, who determined the fullness of time? When when the time was, it's to make replete, to cram full. So when time was completed, when it was topped off, so who set that time? Well, and I, I foolishly thought this way in the past of my life. Well, what God was doing is He was waiting on man to get to a certain place and for man to make a, a certain decision and for the world to get to a certain condition and then God was going to do that. So it was, it was up to man when the Lord was going to come. But see, the truth is, it's like it was in the days of Noah. God told Noah 120 years is what they've got. God set the day; that day never moved. It never moved. God said it, and when the fullness of time was come, as year after year was marked off, when the fullness of that time came, when the day came, that was determined before. God shut Noah in the ark, and the judgment of God fell upon the earth. And so God determined exactly when the Son was going to come. Well, if I'd have sent Him earlier, well, you can take that up with God. I mean, think about how foolish that you, you know more and better than God does. God sent Him in the fullness of time. He sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law. Philippians 2, verse 6. Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery... To be equal with God. It was not robbery. It was not defrauding God, the name Jehovah. It was not defrauding God in any way by calling Jesus equal with Him. Jesus was equal with God. So you see, you can start to see the picture of the Trinity the Spirit, the Father, the Son. They're all in unity, they're all in agreement. They're all working together and they are all equal. You know, it's never like a board of directors at a company where two of them vote one way and one votes the other. You know, that never happens in the Holy Trinity. They're one. They're three, but they're one. Always in agreement. Always in intimate togetherness one with the other. Always working for the same purpose and the same cause so it wasn't robbery to be equal with God but made himself of no reputation now we're talking about the God that created all things that gave life to all things and that sustains life to all what could he have made himself when he was here absolutely anything I mean, he didn't even have to come in a body. He could have just showed up, as he did at Sinai, and I'm not trying to be silly, in a volcano and an earthquake and a whirlwind in the book of Job. But he made himself of no reputation. He didn't come as some royal bloodline. He didn't come as a king. He didn't come to a rich family. He wasn't born in a grand place. He was never thought anything of by the majority of the population. And foxes have holes and birds have nests. The Son of Man hath nowhere to lay His head. This is the way that He came. Well, He had to live like that. No, He absolutely didn't. This is God we're talking about. This is the way that He determined to come and took upon Him the form of a servant... Was he a servant? The divine word of God here. Was there any requirement? You know, the servant, he's required to serve the master. He has to. He's got no choice. He's got no say in the matter. He belongs to him. It's his job to serve the master. Was the divine word of God, was he in any way obligated to come and serve me? What do you think think about that? But he took upon himself the form of a servant. That's not what he was, but he became a servant <clears throat> and was made in the likeness of men. So you know what he looked like? He looked like a man. He did not look glorious to the eyes of men and women. Moses, just in the presence of God for a short time, he come off the mountain, and I don't know what he looked like, but it scared him enough that they said, put a bag over your head. We can't look at that. His face shone. The Lord's face didn't shine. He come as low as low could be. And he come to be a servant. And he guarded himself, and he washed His disciples' feet. And man man in his, in his bigness and in His mightiness, well, I'm just not going to do anything like that. Well, thank God that the divine Word came down, was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, He humbled Himself and became obedient unto death. Not only is He coming down from his glory, and being made like a man, not a special man, not a handsome man. You know Absalom, David's son, he had that long hair that they pulled every year. No doubt a, an attractive man. And everybody would say, boy, that Absalom, have you seen him lately? His hair it just gets prettier every time you see it. That's the best looking man in Israel. And the Lord Jesus had no form, nor comeliness. That we, I mean, he, he came the lowest of low. He came to the poorest of poor. We know they were poor because in the law of God, when an offering was made for a newborn, a firstborn, God gave requirements. And the, for the poor, you could offer two turtle doves. If you couldn't afford anything else, that's what you could offer. And we read that Jesus' parents offered two turtle doves. They were poor. He came as absolutely nothing. Not only that, but He came to be a servant to man. He didn't demand man serve Him, or protect Him, or bring to Him. But He was there to serve man. Not only that, but He's going to come down so much like a man that He's going to die like a man. He's going to humble Himself down to death. And not just any death. Not a heart attack. But He's going to come down to the death on the cross. The most painful and brutal means of execution that there was in that day. That's the way that this Son of God is going to die. Why is all this happening? That God would bring these sons of God into his family. You know, it depended on Jesus for Abraham. Why Abraham was saved before Jesus? Because Jesus was coming, Abraham could be saved by faith. But Jesus had to accomplish and fulfill the law of God in the body of a man. And then he had to suffer and die in the body of a man for two reasons fulfilling our requirements that we couldn't fulfill in the law and paying our penalty of our transgression and sin that we couldn't pay of ourselves. This was to bring redemption unto man. The Word was made flesh. Now I, I said this when we were in verse 1, 2, 3. In the beginning was the Word. So that Word was there it does not it does not mean at one time but it denotes a continual existence so he was there not that he was made there but he existed there and he exists today he's eternal but the the bodily man jesus christ that man that body that wasn't a, there was a day that that man was born into this world. I don't know if that makes a lick of sense or not. Though the Word is eternal, the man, Jesus Christ, He was not eternal in His body. But we can go back in history and we can pinpoint... Ain't it amazing? It's just like what Greg said. This is historical. It's not fairy tales. But you can pinpoint the day... And the place, and if it was still there, and we were closer to the time this was written, you could find the stall and say, "Right there is where this man Jesus—that's where he was born into this world. The eternal Word of God is going to be made." So that's that word you remember. And I, I would like to—I'd like to repeat these words over and over so you remember them. That's a wonderful thing to be able to remember the meanings of the Greek of these words. So the Word was made flesh to cause to be, generate, to become, to come into being. He was not flesh before this day. He's going to be made into flesh. So He's going to become a man. And He's not going to become a 30-year-old man that's mighty and strong and able to defend Himself. He's going to come into the world just like you and I. He's going to come through the womb of a mother. He's going to be birthed in travail. He's going to be born not in a doctor's office or a hospital room. He's going to be born in a manger. He's going to have a definite birthday. No more is there prophecies Telling about a Messiah that's going to come. Now we've got a man in history that was born, that we know when he was born, we know who he was born to, we know the place that he was born in. He's here, he's been made flesh and dwelt among us. So he's tabernacled among us. He didn't live in a gated community. He didn't live in a white house where man couldn't get to him. But you know where he is? I mean, look through the Gospels. Where's the Lord at? He's in the crowd of people. They're thronging him. He's right in the midst of man. And you know, anybody that wanted access, they could come. Blind Bartimaeus was hollering one day and they said, You just need to hush. But the Lord said, Don't you tell him to come to me. The children tried to come and the disciples said, He, he really don't have time for these little young'uns. You just need to stay back and let him teach. And the Lord said, let him come to me. And the the Syrophoenician woman, that was a Gentile, came. And he said, can I take my bread and give it to the dogs? But you know, she got a crumb off of his table. So he had time for everybody. And he was the servant to all that come to him. This This is the Word of God. This is the creator of the world that tabernacled among us. But this word tabernacle, it's looking back to Old Testament. If we were Jews, I believe we could see it better and better. But in Exodus 25 and 8, now God's brought them out of Egypt. They're in the wilderness. God is speaking to Moses. And God says, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. So you know what he's talking about there? They're going to make the tabernacle. The tabernacle and the temple were two different things. In the wilderness and while they wandered, God dwelled in the tabernacle. That was made by Moses. That was a tent is what it was. It had different skins and coverings over it and when God wanted them to move, they could pick it up, pack it up, and move it to the next place. The temple... The first one was built by Solomon. It was a building, and it was in Jerusalem, and it was years after the fact. But here, the first dwelling place of God was in the wilderness. He was going to dwell with His people, and it was going to be in a tabernacle. And in the tabernacle, you know, I I believe we all know that's where the Ark of the Covenant was, back in the most holy place. And God dwelled in between the two cherubims. Amongst His people. And the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud was present. God's presence was with His people. Well, Jesus, He was the literal fulfillment of the tabernacle. We're going to see later on in this chapter, no man's seen God. John's going to say that. So what they saw in the Old Testament, that wasn't really God there. What Isaiah saw in the temple, that wasn't God. He saw the train of the Lord fill the temple, but he didn't see God. Moses said, show me your glory. Moses, no man can see my face, but I'll let you see my hinder parts, my train. So man's not seeing God. They had a presence and a manifestation of His glory. It's called the Shekinah glory in the Old Testament. It wasn't that God was literally there, but His presence and a manifestation of that was there in the tabernacle. But here, here is the divine Word of God in a body walking and talking with man. He literally fulfilled the tabernacle. In verse twenty-nine, chapter 29 of Exodus, I will dwell among the children of Israel and will be their God. So God says, I'm going to be among you. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to keep you. I'm going to be your supreme authority. But what comparison is there now to a tabernacle of gold and silver and leather And fabric to a, now we've got a man that's present and that's walking with us. And he's not Aaron. He's not Moses. He's not Elijah. But he is God walking with them. That's who was present. Made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father full of grace and truth. So we beheld His glory. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, same writer now, John says there, that which was from the beginning, sound familiar? We're looking back now. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled of the word of life. Think about what John is saying there. That which was from the beginning and you know that, that's well and good and I say that respectfully. But nobody saw that happen. We understand how the worlds were made by faith not by sight. Nobody saw that. And so man says, you don't have any proof of that. I I don't. Outside of the Word of God, there is there is really there's no proof of that. That's going to satisfy the curiosity of man. I hope you see what I'm not. I'm not trying to dispute that the Word of God's not credible enough. But we're talking about man that does not believe the Word of God alone. And so I I can't pull this out and say, look. Look at this key here. This proves, this proves that God made the earth. We don't have evidence like that. But that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen, which we have looked upon, which we have handled. John says this isn't something way back that nobody saw, but I heard His voice, with my ears. Not only did he hear the Lord Jesus' voice as he spoke with wisdom and authority, but he heard the voice of God out of heaven say, this is my Son, in whom I'm well pleased. On the Mount of Transfiguration, the voice said, this is my beloved Son, hear ye Him. Not hearsay. Boy, hearsay can be dangerous, can it? So-and-so said that so-and-so said this. And that's, I'm going to say 99% of the time, it's a lie or it's stretched. It's not true. Hearsay not good. John says, I didn't hear this from somebody else. I heard this with my ears. I'm not telling you what somebody else told me. I seen it with my own eyes. And listen, you, you can hear it in the writing of it, which we've seen with our eyes and which we've looked upon. Sounds like the same thing, but it's not. Looked upon is to stare intently at. We might say this way we studied it. So I heard him, I seen him, but it wasn't just a glance that I seen him. No, we were with him and we studied it and we looked intently at it. And not only that, but to handle. I held him in my arms. I embraced Him in my arms. I laid my head in His bosom. I felt His touch. And we saw Him work. And we saw His power. And we saw it manifested. This is not, Peter's going to say, 1 Peter 1 verse 16, we've not followed cunningly devised fables, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. So the world says you've got no proof. We have the Word of God and the New Testament which was written not by hearsayers, but by eyewitnesses that saw every bit of this go down. And I know maybe that's not good enough to satisfy a lot of folks, but they read about the Revolutionary War and they believe that. Well, them people that wrote that was there. What about that? These people were there. John saw him. John heard him. John touched him. John held him. John studied him. Peter said, I've not cunningly devised this fable, but I saw every bit of this go down. You know, I was up on the mountain when he was transfigured and I saw Moses and Elijah there. I'm willing to be crucified upside down because I know that this is the truth. I saw it for myself. And so not only do we have all of the Old Testament prophecies that were fulfilled by the life of Jesus, we've got eyewitness accounts of the works of the Lord Jesus in the flesh, the book of the Acts. That's eyewitness accounts of the working of the Spirit after the Lord had went on to heaven. We're seeing how the Lord began His church through the ministry of the Spirit and the apostles in the book of Acts. We've got eyewitness accounts of all these things. Not only that, but you've got history as well. And here's an interesting thing. Real history that's been dug up through archaeology, however... There's never been one piece of legitimate history that has damned the credentials of the Word of God. May not say it exactly like the Word says it. You know, here's an example. One thing I've read that I can remember off the top of my head. Sennacherib, he was the king of the Assyrians. You remember he came up against Hezekiah. God sent an angel and slew 185,000 men in one night and he turned and went back home they found a writing of the Assyrians that chronologically talked about Sennacherib's battles. And it says he came to Jerusalem and decided to go back home. Now that's what they wrote. He did decide to go back home. Not because he did said, I don't want to take Jerusalem. But they weren't going to tell in their account what God did to keep him out. So there's a whole lot more evidence that this is the truth, then the devil would like for you to believe that there is. The devil wants you to believe that it's just hoping in the dark. That it's just trusting in something that there's no ground upon. That that this man Jesus, how in the world can you know that he done all of these things? Because these men were eyewitnesses of everything that this man Jesus did. John and Peter especially they were the closest two disciples to the man, the Lord Jesus. You're going to hear the account and the record of Jesus from the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's what he's referred to as in this book. John says, I'm revealing to you the truth and Ain't it amazing? Greg's already mentioned this verse this morning. In 1 Corinthians 15, right where Kevin was reading, verse number 6, After that he was seen of about 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. That's easily read over. But that should not be discounted. Paul's writing to the Corinthians that Jesus, after His death and resurrection, appeared to a group of 500 people, some of them's already dead and gone, but the greater part, so more than 250 of those people that seen the resurrected Jesus, they're still alive. And you know what you can do? You can go down and say, Hey bud, tell me what you saw. What did He look like? What did he say? And you could have got, I, I realize we can't do that today. But you do understand that all the enemies that there were of Jesus and of the church, what Paul's writing could have been easily discredited. They could have said, Paul, that's a lie, and you know it is, and thrown it out. But they couldn't. They were eyewitnesses of these things. Hard evidence. John the Baptist was hard evidence from God bearing witness who Jesus was from eternity past. And God has given us eyewitness accounts. We beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father. Now we've already said that these that are born are going to be sons of God. But Jesus is... There's got to be a qualifier there. There. Jesus is not a son of God the way I am. I'm adopted or taken from the father of the devil. I'm brought out of the kingdom of darkness. I'm brought out from under him and translated into the kingdom. He didn't have to be translated. He was born the son of God and always was the son of God the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And we're out of time. We're not going to have time to get to the next few verses. But this grace and truth will go very well with 15 through 18. Psalm 85 verse 10, Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed one another. Psalm ninety-eight, three: He hath remembered his mercy and his truth toward the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. So, let think about this: Was the law true? The law that was given to Moses was that true? It was. It was true. And we read in the New Testament that it was glorious, that it was holy, that it was just, and that it was good. Nothing wrong with the law. It was the truth. But you know, there was no grace in the law. The law was, do this and live. You don't don't do it and you die. That was the law. But Jesus came. He was full of truth, but He was full of grace as well. The divine working of God. And so mercy and truth are meeting together. There's no mercy in the law. But you know, in Jesus, the truth is fulfilled and mercy is given. How can you have mercy and justice? Think think about that. In, In our judicial system, in the United States, if I break the law, how can the law be upheld and me receive mercy? It's a sliding scale. If I'm going to get mercy, then I'm going to have to skirt by the law somehow. And if the law's going to be upheld and the penalty is going to be dished out, then I'm not going to get mercy. But in Jesus they meet together. Jesus is going to meet the requirements of the law perfectly and His life is going to be given that you and I could receive that. God's got a plan that the truth of the law is going to be upheld and that mankind can still receive grace. You hear the law is going to be held up and I'm a breaker of the law. That tells me that I've got no hope. I mean, I've already broke the law. If the law is going to be upheld, then I've got no hope. But God's got a means that the law is going to be completely upheld and I'm still going to receive mercy and it's in the body lo I come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do thy will O God God gave him a body to complete the requirement of the law that we could not complete and to suffer the death of the cross to pay for the sins that we could not pay for. And the law is exalted. Its authority is never moved. Justice is served. You could say, well it was unjust for Jesus to die. It was absolutely just for Jesus to die. Because He was carrying my sin and your sin. He died not for His own. He was dying to pay for our sins and He carried them and nailed them on the cross so that our penalty is paid for. And the law... Now the law is still the law. Still in authority. Still with teeth. But we have grace because the Lord Jesus, He fulfilled the requirements of the law. And not just... Not skating by it either. But He's full. That word play Roma. I've said that a few times. Fullness is how you'll see that. We see that word in verse sixteen. It's that replete. It's crammed. It's full to the brim. Well, this word is a. uh, It's a part of that root word, and it's he's full, overflowing. There's not a shortage of grace and truth. He didn't just barely skirt by with a D. He completed it to perfection, and there's mercy and grace for all. There is all of those in God's plan. He accomplished their salvation at Calvary. Anything on your?